I had a moment of terrible clarity about a dozen years ago. One of those moments in your life where all of a sudden you discover something about yourself you've never known before. I was at a party and this woman came up to me and we were talking and just, you know, the conversation went back and forth as they do. And she asked me this question. She said, what were you like in high school? And it's not a question I really think a lot about, but she asked it, so I began to think. And I said to her, well, let me see. I was tall, and I was really skinny, and I had pimples, and I wore glasses, and I was a bad athlete, and I was scared of girls, and I was a good student, and all of a sudden it hit me, and I said, oh, no, I was a nerd. And that had really never occurred to me before. I never had seen myself that way. But once, once I realized that was true, it was unmistakably so. It changed the way I saw myself. It frankly gave me some comfort to know that was who I was and I guess who I still am. And I had a similar moment this week in preparing for this sermon. I mean, when I read the text that we're going to look at today, because when I read it, all of a sudden something became very clear about myself that I've never really thought about before. And that's the beauty of reading the Bible over and over again, and you see it, you all of a sudden see something in a new way. So what I'd like to do is read today's text, which is from Philippians, in Philippians, verses 3, 8 to 11. I'd like to begin by reading that. The words are on the screen. They're in the bulletin, if you want to look at it in your Bibles. I will read God's holy and perfect word, and then we'll look at what it was that I discovered, and maybe what you'll discover about yourself as well. So this is Paul writing, and he says this. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order they may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." So what is it that I discovered when I read those words? What is, what is this new thought, this new picture I had of myself? It was very simply this. I'm an idol worshiper. I am flat out an idol worshiper. Now, we don't really use the words idolatry, idolater, idol worship very much in the 21st century, other than you're talking about American Idol or something like that. But I read these words, I realized that's exactly who I am. To us, an idol is like the golden calf from the Exodus or an altar that some ancient person put in his home to, to, pray, to, the, to pray to the god Baal or something like that. We don't do things like that. But I think our definition of idol is perhaps too narrow. I think Tim Keller says it best when he says, an idol is really anything we value more than God. And when I read that Paul counts everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, Lord, Christ Jesus as Lord, and that all is rubbish, apart from that, I realize I'm a flat-out idolater. No question about it. Keller says this, which I, I think is also true. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then... I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. And I think there's a that for all of us. There's something that we put ahead of God in some way. When Paul says that he counts everything as rubbish, I don't know that I can say that. I really don't. I've been a Christian for a long time, and yet I think I have idols that I continue to worship. So the question we want to consider today is this, is Green Tree Community Church a church of people who follow Jesus Christ 
and, and put him first in their lives, or are we a bunch of idol worshipers? You know, we just saw what I guess is, in effect, a church hype video. And the problem with the hype video is that all sports teams do it. It's one thing when the New York Yankees do it or the Golden State Warriors, because there's a good chance they can deliver on their promise. But when the, when, when the Florida Marlins do it, when the Cleveland Browns do it, they can't deliver. So we see our mission statement, and we see our mission, we see what our priorities are, do we follow through? So today's sermon in a sentence is very simple. It's a question. Do we, worship the God of the, do we worship the God of the Bible or the idols of our own desires? Let me open in prayer. We'll jump into that and explore what that might mean. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. We struggle to put you first in our lives. We struggle to do what you call us to do, and yet you continue to love us, and I thank you very much for that. And I pray that in the next few minutes, you will give each of us an opportunity to examine our hearts and see what is there. Do we worship you? Do we worship the idols of our own creation? We pray you'll be with us today. In Christ's holy name, amen. Now, the problem with idolatry is it's so easy to succumb to, even when we have good intentions, even when we don't want to do that. And I want to prove that by looking at three statements by three different people, all very famous people. I'm sure I would guess you've heard of them. Um, I'd be surprised if you've not, because in their own field, they are very prominent. And these are statements they made at some point about their relationship with God. And, and I, I won't identify who these people are at first. We will ultimately. But let me simply read these statements and let's see what they said. The first is from a young woman who, at the time she said this, was on a television show. She's now more famous as a recording artist. So whether as an actress or whether as a pop star, she's had a great deal of success. This is what she said. It is such a privilege to be an inspiration to so many young girls. Everyone wants to be an influence, and I have a platform to show girls it's okay to dream big dreams, to be themselves, to live the life you want in a way that shows others the possibilities of who they can be. I enjoy the chance to show the world that you can be wholesome and good and be a good family girl with Christian values and still be a fun-loving fool. Second one is from a baseball player, an athlete who, who is one of the finest baseball players of his generation, a man who will probably go into the Hall of Fame. This is what he said after he signed his first big contract. Playing baseball is a blessing from God. If I even begin to think I can be successful without recognizing my talent and this opportunity comes from God, someone needs to hit me upside the head with a baseball bat. The best part of signing this contract is I can give back to the community. God has given me a platform to help others, and the best way I can honor him is by taking all this money and using it for him. The third person is a, is a businessman a man who had great success in the business world, a guy who grew up in Missouri, went to the University of Missouri. His father was a Baptist preacher, and this is what he said. I begin many of our business dinners with a prayer. I think that sets a tone as to the importance of faith, at least in my life, and sets a tone for the entire meeting. My, employee, my employees know that I take basic religious principles very seriously. Our value system has as its first rule of respect for one another. This is really not, not much more than the golden rule. Our second value is to practice absolute integrity in everything we do. This code is based on Christian values. So three people, three people who speak very clearly of their Christian faith and desire to bring, their desire to bring that faith into the realm in which they are, are experts. So let's look at who they are and let's see how that played out. So here, here's a picture of the three. 
Miley Cyrus, Alex Rodriguez, and Ken Lay. Miley Cyrus, of course, was once the star of Hannah Montana. Now she's more famous for twerking, really, than anything else. And I don't think, I don't think if I were a mother of a teenage girl, I would want to hold up Miley Cyrus as a role model and say, this is the kind of person I hope you become. Alex Rodriguez. This is a picture of Alex, Alex Rodriguez when he was in high school. He went to Westminster Christian Academy in Miami. So he, he went to Christian schools as a young man. He, if you're a baseball player, excuse me, a baseball fan, you know that he became one of the most successful players of his generation, as I said before, but also was suspended during the entire 2014 season for his use of performance-enhancing drugs. He became an embarrassment to the New York Yankees, so much so they didn't even want him to return after his suspension, and they fought his return to the team. The final man is Ken Lay. He was the founder and CEO of Enron. Enron in the early 2000s was one of the major players in the en energy industry. The entire company collapsed, however, because of fraudulent bookkeeping and fraudulent practices by Lay and others, so much so that he was, he was convicted of fraud, would, would have gone to jail had he not died. $11 billion of investors' money was lost in the collapse of Enron and 4,000 people lost their jobs. Now, by Keller's definition, if anything we value more than God is an idol, then I, we can say, arguably, that these people succumbed to the temptation to worship idols. They all began with good intentions. They all wanted to use their influence in a positive way, but somehow, some way, they were lured away from their first love at an enormous price, at an enormous cost. Now, their values, their decisions could not stand in starker contrast to the words that Paul writes again in Ephesians chapter 3. I want to read some of them again, not the entire part of what we read, but just part of it to set the context. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Now, it's easy to say the right words. It's easy to go through the motions. It's very difficult to li live a life that's pleasing to God. Now, true confession moment. When I'm sitting where you're sitting, and Tom is up here preaching, and Chip is up here leading music, I can't tell you the number of times my mind wanders. I start thinking about all kinds of things. My wife and I are going to Hamilton this afternoon at 1 o'clock, so I'm, I'm inside thinking, I need to speed through this sermon so I can get to the theater on time. I mean, even when I'm preaching, I do it. Okay? My mind wanders. I focus on all kinds of things. And then I read the words in Ezekiel, and they bring me up short in terms of my own attitude when I'm in church, let alone anywhere else. This is what, this is what Ezekiel writes in chapter 33. And they come to you as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For the lustful talk in their mouths, they act, their, hearts, their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs, with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument, for they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And that's, that's often me in church on Sunday morning. I sit there and I sing the songs and I pray the prayers and my mind drifts. And that's an indication of, of the way in which my life works. It's very difficult for me to make God the centerpiece of my life, even though I've been a Christian for a long time and that's what I believe I need to do and try to do. And then Isaiah drops a bombshell that makes it even worse. He says this, Isaiah 44, 
All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Okay, I read that all who fashion idols are nothing, and, I, and I'm describing myself there. And the things I delight do not profit. Then he says, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. You should be terrified if you're an idol worshiper. So I read that, and I go, so where does that leave me? I mean, really, where's, really, where does that leave me? What do I do about that? But let's be honest. I, w- I would say that every person's an idolater. And, and, and if I'm offending you by that, if you don't think that you fit, okay. But I think it's very difficult not to be. Because it's, it seems to me that we place something before God. It might be our job. It might be our marriage. It might be our desire to be married. It might be our children. It might be our desire for a dream home. It might be wealth. It might be power. It might be status. It might be something as insignificant as a hobby. It might be something like a team we follow. I mean, when you see the passion from sports fans at a sporting event, you think, is this a worship service going on here? When you see the raw passion that people bring to an arena or to a baseball stadium, what are are our idols? I think all of us to some degree struggle with something. We, we, we are tempted to put something ahead of God. I mean, talk to the wealthiest person you know and ask that person if their wealth has made them happy. Because we know, we know our idols don't satisfy. We know it. I mean, let's use some concrete examples. There used to be a football team in St. Louis. The football team was here for 20 years. The owner of the football team, at the time he moved the team, was worth $14 million dollars. But he had an opportunity to move the team to Los Angeles and make even more money. He could grow that $14 billion to $20 billion or $25 billion or some number north of $14. $14 billion was not enough. And so the city of St. Louis went through all kinds of machinations to try to put together a stadium plan on the riverfront and spent a lot of money to do it. And all the time, the owner knew he wasn't going to keep the team here. Is that man satisfied with $14 billion? No, he's not. That does not give him the sense of fulfillment and purpose that, that gives him a sense of complete identity. He, he wants more. Money doesn't do it. Power doesn't do it. Think of the most powerful people in the world. Think of almost any president of the United States. And think about whoever you want to think about. Is that person happy? Is that person centered? Does that person seem to you like a person who is at peace with himself? Now, we can think of some presidents who, who arguably are or were, but, but I think we can all think of lots of examples of, of, of men who were not. And if you think of world leaders in general, and leave out the Stalins and Hitlers, the really, really, really bad guys, and just the average run-of-the-mill world leader that you can think of, is that person centered and happy and fulfilled? Think about the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement arose because men in positions of power, men with status and, in many cases, fame and great wealth, found it wasn't enough. They wanted more. And so they imposed upon the women in their, in their employ in some really terrible, terrible ways. Our, our idols do not satisfy no matter what. And I've, I've quoted a woman named Cynthia Heibel before from this pulpit, but I want to reference her again because she says something that's really, really profound. She was, re, she was a writer for the Village Voice in New York City. She lived in Greenwich Village, and because she lived in Greenwich Village, she saw a lot of celebrities before they became celebrities, when they were, when they were taxi drivers and waiters and bartenders and things like that. She knew them when, 
And she said that when she knew them before they became famous, that they seemed to be perfectly decent people. But there was something about that drive for fame, that something about achieving fame that twisted them and turned them. And she says, I pity celebrities. And she writes in a very famous article about celebrity and the cost of celebrity, about the the way in which these people became so selfish and so self-focused. And she ends her article with this line, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish. God gives you your idol and lets you see if it really satisfies. So again, we run headlong into Paul's words in, in Philippians 3, in which he warns us about who we are. You see, Paul was a man who had it all, and he threw it all away. Let me again read the same lines I've read before. I want you to hear them one more time. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ." What is it that Paul counts as loss? What was his idol? What is it that he gave up? His idol, as he writes right before in Philippians chapter 3, right before the verses I read, he talks about his Jewish identity. That was his idol. You see, he was a Pharisee, one of 6,000 Pharisees, a man who was in the inner ring, the inner circle in his society. He was a man who was very, very, very well educated. He, he studied at the foot of the rabbi Gamaliel, who was the greatest teacher of his day. So essentially, he had a Harvard education. He was tasked by the rabbinical council to be the one who was charged with uh, stamping out Christianity. So he had a special mission that gave him special status, and he was, one, he was regarded as a real leader among this group of men. And yet, he says, he counts as rubbish. He threw away that idol. It's interesting that in verse 8, he says, and it's the only time in any letter that Paul uses this phrase, he calls Jesus my Lord. You see, Paul had built his life around a code of ethics, a code of behavior, a code of Jewish law. But now he's traded. He's traded for a relationship in which Jesus is no longer, or, or God is no longer this abstraction and a bunch of words on a sheet of paper, but he's his Lord. There's a relationship here that's radically different. And so he trades what he had for that relationship at a great cost. He is beaten, he is flogged, he is stoned, he suffers hunger and thirst and shipwreck and and imprisonment, and ultimately, he's beheaded. He makes that trade, and he thinks that's all a good trade. There's something very powerful at work here in Paul's heart that, that ought to be a lesson to us. He gave up everything that a man in his society could want, and he says, it's rubbish. So what is it? Well, again, Paul built his life around a code of righteousness that was all about his attempt to be obedient to a code of laws. But now he says there's a new source of righteousness. He says it is that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's a whole new paradigm here for Paul. He's saying, it's not about me doing the right thing. It's not about me trying to be perfect. It's not about me performing. It's about God Me responding to God because of what he's done in faith. Now, what is faith? I like what John MacArthur says when he says, Faith is a confident, continuous confession of total dependence on and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirements to enter God's kingdom. I want to read that again. The confident, continuous confession of total dependence on and trust in Jesus Christ for the necessary requirements to enter God's kingdom. See, Paul made a trade. 
He said, I'm going to give up all of this for this. And it's worth it. It's worth it. The relationship is worth it. And Jesus describes that relationship and what that trade is about two times in Matthew. First in Matthew 16, 25 and 26, where he says this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, look at that question. What would we give for our soul? I mean, what are we willing to give up for our soul? What are we clinging to that keeps us from coming to Christ and gaining an eternal relationship with him? What could be of such value that we would cling to that, which we know is going to go away? And then, and then he expands upon that in Matthew 13 when he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. If we knew, if you knew there's a vacant lot near your house and buried under that vacant lot was $30 million in gold, you'd be a fool not to sell your house and sell whatever you have to buy that house, I guess, or buy that field, unless I guess you're worth more than $30 million, then that's another discussion. But that is the worth in micro of what Paul is talking, or what Jesus is talking about here. It's a great trade. And yet somehow we cling to things which we know will not satisfy. You see, Paul had built his life on grim determination, steely-eyed grit to try to do the right thing. He tried to make it all about him. In a sense, he made his performance his idol. His Jewish identity and his performance became that which drove him. And now he's saying, no, that was folly, that was stupid. Why did I do that? It's not about that, it's about Jesus, it's about living for him. And the problem for us is that if we go to Green Tree Community Church... We hear Tom Rick stand up in this pulpit week after week after week and say to us very clearly that salvation is found through faith in Christ and it's because of the grace of God and the work of of Jesus Christ on the cross that makes us able to be forgiven for our sins. And, And if you've been to Green Tree for five weeks, you've heard that. Probably for, well, because last week was Easter, you've definitely heard it. It's impossible not to hear Tom say that. And we all hear that. And we agree with it, I think, if we're Christians. And yet somehow, somehow, in the core of who we are, it doesn't entirely sink in. I want to read a, I want to read a statement by a guy named Tullian Chavidian in a, in a book in which he says, Jesus and nothing equals everything. Because I think it describes me and the battle I have as a Christian. And this is what he says. A Christian man I struggle with believing that our good behavior is required to initially earn God's favor. But I haven't met one Christian who doesn't struggle daily with believing somehow, some way, that our good behavior is required to keep God's favor. And isn't that true? There's such a temptation for us to make, take what Christ has done on the cross and turn it around and say, okay, good, thanks, got it, love it, but now let's see what I can do. Let me make it all about me again. So we make our own behavior our, our, our own idol. Our, our good behavior is going to save us. So I'm going to read the Bible to make sure God still loves me. I'm going to go to church to make sure God still loves me. I'm going to give money to the church to make sure God still loves me. Forgetting that we've totally flipped the equation. We're totally missing the point. Because because those are good things. Those are the things we should do. But we should do them out of response to what Christ has done first. As a way of saying to God, thank you so much 
for what you've done, and I want to honor you and know you better by reading your word and by praying and by going to church and by worshiping as a response to what you've done, not as a way to earn your favor. We so fail to understand that. And so even though we may have been a Christian for a week or 50 years, that's a temptation we face. We make our goodness an idol, and it's a real problem. And the problem with idolatry is it leads us to worship false gods, always, whether that is fame or status or our own goodness. It doesn't matter what it is. We somehow mess it up. But here's the problem. We know we should tear down our idols. We know that. That's self-evident. But it's so difficult to do. It is so difficult to do. And Paul tells us it is. He says we will share in his suffering as a part of what we read earlier. He's, we're going to share in Christ's suffering. And we're going to do it on multiple levels. On, on the most basic level, we're going to have to say goodbye to our egos, our value systems, our priorities, our agenda. If we're going to be men and women of God who tear down the idol of self and put Christ where he should be. We're going to have to die to that. And it's kind of like when you get married. You have to die to a lot of things when you get married, don't you? All of a sudden, you have to adjust a whole new set of values and priorities that, that were not yours when you were single. And you love the person. It's not, and it, it, it's going to be, you may love the person enormously, but it's still going to be different, dif- difficult. It's not easy to die to our own agenda. And so there's some suffering on that level, and that's true. But there's another suffering, too, because we're going to have to give up the God we've created. You see, we tend to create a God who makes it convenient for us. And we tend to look at the good things in the Bible and read those and focus on them. So when Jesus says, you will, you will, I will give you life, you'll have it abundantly, we read that and say, great, I want, that's what I want. When Jesus says, uh, uh, seek and ye shall find, ask and it will be given unto you, we say, good, I'm, I'm good with that one. But when Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me and die to yourself, then all of a sudden we go, wait a minute, I don't know about that one. We want the good stuff. And he's saying, you got it all. It's a relationship. You've got to build a relationship with me that is deeply rooted. And then there's another kind of suffering that in many ways is the most difficult at all, and that is that we would like to think that when we become Christians that our life is going to become good, that we're guaranteed smooth sailing. And and anybody, anybody who pays any attention at all to reality knows that's a fantasy. That's not going to happen. All we have to do is look at the fact that 10 of the 12 disciples were martyred for their faith to suggest that being a Christian is no guarantee of safety. We're going to suffer in this world. And when we suffer in this world, it becomes very, very, very difficult for us. Because at those are the points at which we say, well, Jesus, where are you? I mean, really, where are you? I didn't expect it to be like this. I didn't expect to have to pay this price. I didn't think it was going to be so hard. Because the circumstances of life can be extraordinarily difficult. What we need to remember is this. That no matter how deep the pit in which we find ourselves, Jesus went into a much deeper pit than that. A little more than a week ago, we celebrated Good Friday, the day in which we we honor Christ and remember what he did on the cross. It's unimaginable to us the price he paid in suffering on the cross. His physical excruciating pain he went through is the least of what he suffered. He suffered to enable us to live with him for eternity forever, forgiven as his sons and daughters. So we are going to go through hard times. We are going to suffer. But the difference between suffering apart from Christ and suffering for Christ is that he always seeks to make it redemptive. The work on the cross is redemptive. And the, what, he, what he, he, he hopes that he can, what he tries to do through the suffering we endure, is to help us to better understand him and to walk through it with us, as difficult as it may be. 
C.S. Lewis calls pain God's megaphone. He's crying to us saying, look at me, trust me, trust me. And it's so hard for us because we don't want to go into that pit. One of my favorite verses, oddly enough, is Romans 8, 22 and 23. And, and it talks about the suffering of the world where Paul writes, we know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pain of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. This idea that the world is groaning, waiting for Christ's return, groaning at the pain of the world. Everything's broken. Our relationships are. Our bodies are. Society is. The world at large is. The natural world is broken. It's all broken and it causes so much pain. And yet, in the midst of that pain, Christ calls us to look to the cross and remember that he is there to redeem. Now, let's talk about how this plays out in real life. My wife and I have some good friends who suffered a terrible, terrible, terrible blow in early February. Husband and wife were watching TV one weekend night. The husband got tired. He said to his wife he was going to bed. Did so. His wife stayed downstairs to watch TV. The next morning he woke up and looked to see that his wife had never made it to bed. He went downstairs and found that she was lying on the floor next to the couch and she had a stroke shortly after he'd gone upstairs. And she had been lying on the floor helpless all night long. Their life was turned upside down that day. The prognosis was grim. And she's been in the hospital and in rehab ever since. And it's been a long, slow, painful process of moving toward regaining mobility and regaining all the things you lose when you have a serious stroke. It's tough. This family is suffering. And they are godly, godly people. Some of the most, most, most beloved Christians I know. They have served the church, served the Christian community well, and they are suffering. I go to the Caring Bridge website fairly often to read the blogs that this husband writes about the experience they're going through, and I, every time I do, I just kind of step back in awe of what the man has written. He's got a great sense of humor, so he's funny in the midst of his suffering, but he also speaks profoundly of the love of God in the midst of the darkest time in their life. And I want to read that to you. I want to read some, some, something from his blog to you to sort of give you a sense of their attitude. Because if, if suffering can be redemptive, this is a man who understands that in a very real way. First of all, what I'm going to read to you is going to be a quote from a book from a guy named David Pallison. The husband writes this to begin the blog, and then I'll jump into the words of the husband. So here's the quote first. Your life story may contain a great deal of misery and heartache along the way. But in the end, in Christ, your life story will prove to be a comedy in the original sense of the word, a story with a happy ending. You play a part in the divine comedy, as Dante called it, with the happiest ending of any story ever written. Death, mourning, tears, and pain will be no more. Life, joy, and love get last say. High sovereignty is going somewhere. Life, joy, and love get last say. A comedy is a story that has a happy ending. And that's what he's saying to us. And then the husband writes this. What we're going through really is a God thing. It's not the plan I intended, but God's plan is perfect and much better, ultimately for us as well as for glory for him. Many of you know, but some might not have experienced that God does work in us and through us for good benefit. And we believe God and expect him to do what he has promised. It's a beautiful thing. That is what we're experiencing here as a family. 
Our families in the beginning of a story we didn't expect to be in, but we're most certainly being lifted up, comforted, and sustained by what God has promised to provide. In fact, he's doing so beyond what we could ask for, beyond our needs, and there is no sign of his blessings being diminished or depleted. It's not because we're so strong, it's not because our faith is so strong, but rather because our God is so strong, so loving, and so faithful. The faith the Bible speaks of is really quite profound and quite simple. True faith is believing God and then living out that belief. We do not have the ability to meet the challenges that we face. We believe, that what, we believe what God has promised to do, and we are simply living out that belief. So if you have any praise to make, give it to God as we do. There's no idolatry here. There's no sense of entitlement here. There's no sense that God owes me anything. There's no sense of anger at God. How could you do this to me? We've served you so well. There's a simple recognition of God's goodness, even though they are going through what is literally the worst experience of their entire life. In a sense, this stroke provided a moment of real clarity for them in a very serious way, similar to what I, in a much, much, more, much, much more minor way, experienced when I realized I was a nerd. All of a sudden, everything became clear. They had an understanding of, of the way things were that they had, that they had been theoretical up to that point but became very real then. Because they know now, again, going back to the text for today, they know that in a very well way that they may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. For them, they, any means possible is really, really hard. But they value that because their idol is not themselves. It's not God's guarantee. It's not God's guarantee of their safety. It's God's love for them and their love for God. So what does this mean for us and what does this mean for Green Tree Community Church? Really simple question. What is our idol? What do we worship? What do we put ahead of God? Because again, it's very easy to pay lip service like Ken Lay or Miley Cyrus or Alex Rodriguez. It's very easy to say the words. It's very difficult to live it. Are we people like Ezekiel who come to church on Sunday and sing the songs but don't pay attention to what the words are in the songs, half listen to the sermon with their eye on the clock? I mean, really, what do we do? How do we deal with that? Do, is God something sort of like a superfluous sidekick who comes along? We pull him out, we really need him, but most of the time we're, we got it, we're good because we're, building, we're busy building our career or raising our children or doing whatever it is we do. What do we worship? Success, money, power, status. I mean, what is it? It's something. Do we worship the God of the Bible? Do we, as Green Tree Community Church, take the words that were on the screen a few minutes ago in terms of our core values, or excuse me, our mission, do we take that seriously? Do we think seriously as a church body about doing those things? Or is it just something we leave to other people to do? Do we take the words of Scripture and say, well, that's fine, but that's too much for me right now? as an individual and as a church. You know, Paul says everything apart from Christ is rubbish. He didn't say, well, that was good, but this is better. He says, no, that was rubbish. And we've got to recognize that that's what, that's what God is calling us to do as a church and as individuals. I need to look at my own heart and see where my idols lie. And he's calling upon all of us to do the same thing. It is time to tear down our idols. Let me close in prayer. Father, this whole issue of idol worship is very, very difficult because it's very difficult for us 
to not be dazzled by the things of the world. It's, not, it's very difficult for us not to focus on what we want, what we need, to make our priorities secondary to yours and to make yours everything. I just pray, Lord, you would give me the ability to look at my own heart, and I pray you would give this church the ability to look at its collective heart, and that you would help individuals in this, in this room who are dealing with these issues to take a look at their own heart, that we may see how we may serve you well. Thank you, Father, for loving us in spite of our sin, in spite of our flaws, and that, that your love is guaranteed forever and ever because of your goodness on our behalf. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen.